0: All right, so we are, uh, we are studying through the book of Acts, and uh, if you've been traveling along this road with us, uh, we are in Acts chapter 20, so I'd encourage you to turn there with us if you want. If you want to use the Bible that's in front of you and the chair in front of you, it's on page 641 or right around 641, uh, and uh, Acts chapter 20 is where we'll be hanging out. Last week, we were in Acts 19, which makes sense. That's why we're in 20 today. But uh, in Acts nineteen, we see this this riot erupt. So the city of Ephesus, we were talking about it last week. The city of Ephesus is three hundred thousand people that uh, live in this city. It's the second largest city to Rome in the known world at the time. So three hundred thousand people, and there's enough. There there there's a temple to the goddess Artemis in this city, and there are silversmiths and tradesmen that make idols uh, in in honor of Artemis that are to be worshipped. And, uh, and their, their craft is to make these things and then sell them to the tourists that are coming into the city to come to the big temple of Artemis. And then they can take these little trinkets and these idols home and they can worship from home. And, uh, and so these, these tradesmen get all riled up and they realize that their, their bottom line is taking a hit because there's so many people in this city of 300,000 that have come to know Jesus and stopped worshiping idols that they've stopped buying the idols from the tradesmen and the tradesmen have started to see that the Christians have affected their bottom line. So the economy of Ephesus takes a hit because the gospel is doing its work in people's lives and the people, since their lives are built around these idols, get mad. And they form a riot and they get people to fill this stadium, this amphitheater that's, that holds that we, we know today that it'll hold at least 25,000 people in the ruins that we have today. I don't know if it was bigger than that or not, but we know that, that this big mob of people show up and Luke even records in chapter 19 that the people didn't know why they were there. They just knew that there was a crowd gathering and everybody was mad. And so uh, it was kind of like that sentiment of like, oh, where, where are we all going? What's going on? What's going on over there? Everyone's mad? What am I supposed to be mad about? Sure, I'll be mad. What do you want me to yell? Yeah, I'll yell that. And so it says that there was a, that someone stands up the, and, he, and he holds up his hand. He's like, everybody, please be quiet. I have something important to tell you. And as he's saying that, they just start screaming louder. And they scream, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And they scream that over and over and over again in continuity for two hours. Think about that, for two hours. And it is deafeningly loud and it is a riot. That's that's just all that it is. There's no crowd control. It's, It's a riot. And this riot is formed and riled up because what they really were building their lives on was being threatened. And so what we wanted to look at when we looked at Acts 19 last week was just ask the questions, what are we building our lives on? What are, our, what are we worshiping? What are, we, what are our idols? What are the things that if that was taken from us, our reaction would be similar to the silversmiths in Ephesus? What if taken from me would be my my vehement reaction? We ask questions like, what do we daydream about? What What do we say if only I had this? Or life would be so much better if. What are we aspiring to and why are we aspiring to it? Because the reality is where our hopes are lying, that's usually what we're worshiping. And what we're worshiping is either God or an idol. That's the hard truth of it. And that's that's where we left off last week, was just asking those questions. See, Paul lived uh, an existence where no matter what was thrown his way, he had peace. Kind of blows our minds when you're looking at some of his circumstances, but he had peace because what he had built his life on was an eternal God. Not a temporal one, not a hope, not a dream, not an expectation, but on God himself. And so we see in any, all circumstances, which is exactly what he says to the church in Philippi when he tells them, I have learned that whether rich or poor, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I was just sharing with somebody last week, that's not like the Evander Holyfield had that printed on his shorts because he said like, you know, I can do all things through God who gives me strength. I can win every fight, even if Tyson bites my ear off, right? Uh, So that was a lame attempt at a joke. Anyway, uh, thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. You know, like we, we tend to misinterpret what that Scripture verse is saying, but Paul is referring to what his hope is built on that no matter if I have a lot in the bank account or nothing in the bank account, whether I have good circumstances or poor circumstances by the world's standards, I can do anything as long as Christ is the one providing me with my strength. That's what, that's what his, whole, his, his whole world was built upon. It didn't change the fact that this was becoming a dangerous place for Paul to be. And as the followers of Jesus were seeing this, they were saying, listen, you are of greater value to us if you can travel to other places and encourage the body as you travel out of Ephesus. You've been here for three years. You have done a good work. And so what we're going to see here is a winding down of the book of Acts starting with chapter 20. From 20 to 28, we're starting to see a winding down of Paul's story. Not his energy, just we don't get the kind of details that we once got because Paul's not staying in one place long enough to have moments like he has with the church in Ephesus. He's traveling and he has specific goals in mind, and we're going to be able to see that as we go along, but where we pick up the story this week is Paul is on his way out of Ephesus. So in verse uh, in chapter 20 what we see happen is there's there's a lot that happens here but something that we see that's exposed pretty deeply and dramatically throughout the from here to the end of acts something that we see even at like a doubled down level is what's really driving Paul, what's really driving him to be the man that he is? Now, listen, I'm going to give you a little spoiler here because I'm going to answer what that question is before we unpack it. But if you want to look ahead on uh, chapter 20, verse 24, Paul answers the question of what's really driving him or how he views his life. Verse 24 says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his life's mission. That was why he was here. That was why he got up in the morning. That's what drove him. That's what his goals were oriented around. If Paul were to write resolutions at the beginning of a new year, they would be grounded around that premise that I don't really hold my life all that valuable. He's saying that to them because they just asked him to move into a safer environment. And he's letting them know that the main reason I said yes and agreed to that was, I feel the Spirit is leading in me to be of influence elsewhere. What we're going to see in chapter 20 is he meets with the guys who are leading this movement of the gospel in Ephesus, the church, and he tells them some instructions before he heads out. But verse 24 is where we really see Paul's heart for why he's doing this. Now, one thing that Luke does a good job, Luke's a physician by nature. Luke Luke is a detail guy. Do uh, I, I, you ever see that? Uh, I think it's for progressive or I forget what it's for, but the, the doctor that comes into the room and he's like, yeah, I'm okay. Or, hey, I just got my license back. You know what I'm talking about? Are you scared? Yeah, me too. You know, like, and we'll see if we can get it done, right? Like, uh, Doctors can't afford to be those kind of people I don't think and Luke doesn't seem to be that Luke has to be focused in on the details so that he gets the story straight so when Luke retells the story of what's happening in Acts and this is all penned by Luke it's written by a person who cares about the details so one thing that Luke does is he gives chronological details all throughout the book of Acts he tells us what's happening and where so that whenever we see that later on in one of Paul's letters and whether it's the 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 letter to the church in Corinth or Ephesus or or, Philippi, or Philippians. Like he, he, he gives us chronological detail in Acts so that we can sort of know what's happening and what's going on. This is happening over a span of years. We only see like maybe a chapter or two of what's happening in Ephesus, but he's there for three years. So there's a lot of work that happens over three years. He's given as much detail as he can and still making it all readable for the reader. So, in verses 1 and 2, it starts off like this, chapter 20, uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. After the uproar ceased, this is, this is, of course, referring to the big riot that happened, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. He had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement when he came to Greece. Now, this is, uh, this is important for us to look at because I don't, I don't have a map up for you today. But if you were to be able to see a map, you'd be able to see that he could have gone through the sea. He could have gotten on a boat and went to the sea and got right where he wanted to go without having to walk so far or go through all this land. The reason that Luke gives us, gives us this detail is because he, he wanted to use this trip to encourage churches all throughout the Roman Empire, As the gospel is increasing and churches are being planted and leaders are being grown, the gospel is making his presence known and and expanding. Just as the Roman Empire is expanding, so is the gospel, so is the church. And so he doesn't want to get on a boat and take the fastest way there. He wants to walk through so he can be an encouragement to these churches along the way. And that, like I said, goes back to verse 24 where we see Paul's heart. Why he does what he does, how he does it, all of those things. And so this is, this is Paul leaving, and after the uproar ceases, after things kind of calm down in Ephesus, he gets the disciples together and says, okay, well, there's enough peace that you can probably get out of the city and meet with me, and, and like the, the, big, the big to-do has calmed down a little bit, so why don't we gather? I'd like to get you together. And so he, he sits with them, and he what? He encourages them. He gives them an encouragement. Now, we don't know exactly what he said, but what we do know is when he meets with these guys later on, Paul gives us, or Luke gives us details as to what Paul said. But when he meets with them at this point, he's encouraging them. And then he hits the road and does some missions work. Now, if you read verses 3 through 6, you're going to get details of where he goes, towns that are hard to pronounce. Uh, it's not that they're not important. It's just for the sake of time, we're not going to go through all of them. But I encourage you, if you're ever curious, read those and look it up on a map and watch where Paul goes and how he gets there. Because Paul was not a shortest distance between two points a straight line kind of guy. Paul was, I'm going to go where the Spirit leads and I'm going to encourage people along the way. So he let the Spirit really guide his trip, and sometimes it looked a little chaotic. But in verse 7 through 12, we get one of these moments in Scripture. Now, there's several of these, by the way. There's moments in Scripture that you read a story or you hear about a story, and you start to ask yourself, that's not in the Bible, right? Like, that's, that's totally not in the Bible. Whether it's the story where... Uh, where Jacob gets cheated out of his, his uh, colored and striped goats, and so he puts striped sticks in front of the feed troughs, and as the goats mate looking at striped sticks, they have striped babies. That's in the Bible, by the way. Whether it's a, guy, a king that's an evil king, and he's sitting on the toilet doing his business, and, and he gets stabbed in the stomach, and uh, he's so fat that, the, that his stomach rolls over top of the sword, and nobody knows that he's dead, and they just think he's sitting on the toilet far too long. That's in the Bible, there's stories like that riddled through Scripture, and they're unbelievably cool. And as a youth pastor, former youth pastor, I love them. I think they're hilarious, especially that, that poop one. That, one. that one killed with the youth group times. But uh, this is a story that, uh, that I, I just want to read it. So chapter 20, verse 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That's a long-winded preacher right there, right? Uh, how many of you would like that if I was just like, you know what? I feel Spirit moving. I'm just going to keep on rolling here. Buckle up. We're going to be here till midnight. Now, when the church gathered, just so you know, they would gather for, it says earlier in Acts that they were devoted to a few things. They were devoted to the gathering together, the breaking of bread, to... Uh, the apostles' teaching, and one of those, when it says breaking of bread, it means communion, which means they were going to, they were going to enjoy a meal together in one another's homes and, and also enjoy the bread and the cup. They were going to experience that together. So as these people were gathered, they've had a meal together, and Paul just keeps on going, man. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now, that might not seem all that important to you, but I want, you to, I want to remind you not that they just ate a big meal. The lamps weren't there just to provide light. They were there to provide heat. So now you've got full stomachs and a nice warm room. Follow along. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked, still longer and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third-story window and was taken up dead. How many of you have ever met someone with that verse tattooed on their arm? That's not one that we tend to talk about, right? Like Eutychus was so overwhelmed with the comfort of sitting on the windowsill and how long-winded the preacher was that he fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, he fell backwards out a third-story window, hit the ground, and died. And it doesn't seem to really interrupt Paul's preaching all that much because Paul, in verse 10, went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I like Luke's language. They were not a little comforted. You know, we don't use language like that. We would say things like, they felt a lot of comfort. But here's this young man in the room. And by the way, Eutychus, his name, it means fortunate. Let that sink in. This young man's name means fortunate. Now, in the moment that he's asleep and falling out a third-story window and dying on the ground, he doesn't seem all that fortunate, but this is the power of God being put on display. And, and the reason I want to break this down just for a minute isn't just for the humor of it, because it is a pretty, uh, it is a pretty humorous moment, uh, not because he died, by the way. That's not funny. That's actually dark humor. But uh, that Paul is speaking until midnight. Someone's comfortable sitting on a windowsill, and it's like, I mean, you've been there. I see you. I see you on Sundays. You've been there. I'm just glad none of you are sitting on windowsills. And so this young man falls asleep. And this passage, by the way, has been used to defend uh, that God still uses a healing ministry, God still makes apostles, Capitoli apostles in the church, and they are still given the divine power of speaking healings in people's lives. And, and we don't believe theologically that that's accurate, but people use this passage as a defense of that. And one of the things that I want to draw out is that this is not a, uh, th- this is not a, um, a miracle service. It gets interrupted by a sermon. This is a church gathered hearing the truth of God expounded. This is the church gathering to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And God so chooses to make himself known through a miraculous healing. This hasn't happened very much Uh, in Scripture. We see Jesus, he'll bring three people back to life. We saw Peter do it. We saw Paul do it. This is not a common occurrence it happened with, with Elijah and Elisha, and so Paul is taking cues from them, and he goes and he, he he goes over this young man and he says, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and then he left. And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. Do you think they'll remember that moment in the life of the church? This is not an admonition about falling asleep in church, although you should be careful where you sit whenever you have a long-winded preacher in a comfortable room. But this is not a miracle service that's interrupted by a preacher. This is, not a, uh, this is not an admonition of someone talking too long because we're talking about the Apostle Paul having the Word of God laid into his heart and feeling the need to tell that to the people. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. The giver of life, uh, th- this, is, this is a moment where the giver of life is reminding people where life comes from. So as that's the, the main thing that's happening in the life of the church, where people are hearing the apostle preach, and they're hearing people, ha- and then God even miraculously shows up and brings life into people. It's a powerful picture of how the Word of God can bring spiritual life, true life into us, but God's power can also bring physical life back into what once was dead. Now, if you read the end of that section from 13 to, through 16, you see where Paul's headed. You see that he gets on a ship and he heads to a different spot, and we're going to pick up at verse 17. And we're going to read through verse 35. So follow along with me, if you will, 17 through 35. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them. Now, listen, just so we're on the same page here. What's happened now is Paul has been traveling. He gets to a spot where he's preaching and he's teaching to people along the way. And uh, in Troas, by the way, is where this happens with Eutychus. He's there for seven days. The church is meeting on a Sunday now. And that's to honor the resurrection, by the way. They're they're picking the first day of the week to honor the resurrection of the Savior. And they're meeting on that first day of the week because that's how they want to start their week, is in worship. So they're gathered on a Sunday. That's really why, why we gather on Sundays. And... Paul is preaching and teaching, and he heads out of there and heads into the next spot. And as he gets a little further away, he wants to have one last interaction with the the church leaders from Ephesus. And so instead of him going back to Ephesus, what we see in verses 13 through 16 is where is Paul going? He's going to Jerusalem. He feels God has compelled him to go back to Jerusalem to be there in time for Pentecost to be there in time for the day of Pentecost, which that has happened years before, and now it is actually something being celebrated in Jerusalem. And he wants to be back there for it. He feels like God is leading him to do it. So he doesn't really, if he wants to honor God and get where God wants him to go, he doesn't have time to turn the whole way back to Ephesus and meet with the church leaders in Ephesus and be able to tell them what he feels God's laying on his heart to tell them. So he sends... He sends someone back to Ephesus to get the leaders to come meet with him where he's at. In verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them... Now listen, this is the last time that we're going to see Paul be able to talk to these leaders face to face. So this is what he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God, This is his last charge to people that are going to be leading the church that he had spent three years seeing God establish. So he's leading them. He's asking questions of them. These are men that he knows. But God has given him direction, God has given him vision, God has given him direction to go back to Jerusalem. And along the way, he also has been warned by the Spirit in him that there will be imprisonment and there will be persecution along the way for him. That he knows this is part of the story, of his story moving forward. That this, this is not going to be easy. He starts off by just saying to them, you know how I lived among you the whole time. You know how I lived among you the whole time. He goes and says that he went he with people from house to house, in public and from house to house. We didn't just gather people together. I lived with you. I lived among you. I was in your homes I slept on your your floor, I slept on your couch, I crashed in your guest room, I was was hosted by you, we met together in homes, we we made this the main part of why we lived. This is why we're here, he says, to work through this together in community, and he said, you know that because that's what I did for three years, you know why I came. There was never a doubt in your mind. I didn't leave any room for you to doubt why my main purpose here was to bring you the gospel. What he's saying to them is, don't stop doing that. Don't stop being in one another's homes. Don't stop meeting together. Don't stop doing that. The church was devoted to these things the very beginning in Acts 2, 3, and 4, and it carried over to this major church in Ephesus. It was like what some people have called Paul's crown jewel. I don't know if Paul saw it that way, but, but that's how we would say it because it was, it was the largest, it was the second largest city in the known world. These are leaders that are leading a very influential city where the gospel is on the move, and he's reminding them, how did it get established? It got established because we focused our eyes on serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, the plots that were against me from the people I used to work for. I did not stop declaring to you anything that was profitable, I did not stop declaring to you anything that was pointing us to Jesus. I wasn't afraid to tell you hard things, and I definitely wasn't a shy to tell you good things. Taught in the public square, we taught from house to house, testifying that both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells them, I headed to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember back to whenever we covered this, Jerusalem was the starting point and the launch pad of the church. There was once a a gathering of leaders, and they were called the Jerusalem Council, and later on, whenever a big decision has to be made, it's actually called the Council of Antioch, and so the church and this epicenter of where the church is being spread out of shifts from Jerusalem into Antioch. So there's still a movement of the gospel in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is not the place that it once was. There is persecution there, and he says, I don't know what is waiting for me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But that's when he says, I don't hold my life to be all that important unless I can work to finish my course and ministry that I'll receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He goes on to tell them that none of you are going to see my face again. And he says something interesting in verses 26 and 27. I'd like to read it to you again. I want to explain it. I think it's fascinating. He says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, why would he use that phrasing? Why would he say that I'm not guilty? I am not guilty of the blood of all. He says, uh, I am innocent of it. Because, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Well, if you want to, you can turn back with me to Ezekiel, that's in the Old Testament, it's on page 493 if you're using the Bible in front of you, Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel chapter 33 is where we're going to look this morning, and Ezekiel prophesies this, this phrase that Paul is actually going back to and talking and referring to right now, Ezekiel 33, we're going to look at the first seven verses, listen to this. Like I said, page 493, if he's in the Bible in front of you. Ezekiel says this, The word of the Lord came to me, verse 2, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people... Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned. And the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now, as a pastor, that passage is terrifying. And not not in a keeps me up at night in fear kind of way, But scary in the fact that the responsibility we have when we open the pages of God's Word and we communicate the gospel to people, it's to be the watchman. It's to be the one that knows the swords are coming. Not to always stand on the soapbox with their megaphone and yell at people if they don't love Jesus, they're going to hell. There might be truth to that, but it might not gain the audience. So Paul is saying, referring to that passage... That he did not shy away from giving the whole counsel of God. I was assigned the task of being the watchman, and I did not shy away from giving the full counsel of God. Old and New Testament where we connect the dots between the law that was given and how it pointed us to our brokenness and then points and opens our eyes to the reality that we need a Savior, that we need Jesus, and then Jesus comes and He gives His life for us. He lives the life we couldn't live and dies the death we deserved and then raises raises Himself from that death for us, for our benefit, And the rest of the New Testament is instructions for holy living. The old acronym of the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. So you've got this whole storyline that comes out. And what Paul's saying is I didn't shy away from one section of it. I I was not afraid to communicate any part of the full counsel of God. Now, we know that because the reason Paul has been imprisoned, by the way, uh, attempted murder on his life, the reason these things have happened to him is because he teaches the full counsel of God. The reason he knows it's coming again is because he teaches the full counsel of God, that Paul lives out. the the reality that he cares more about the eternal state of people's souls than he cares about their feelings. The Bible is not a book for people that are easily offended. Actually, let me rephrase that. The Bible is for everybody, but if you're easily offended, you're going to have trouble with the Bible until you get over your feelings being hurt. So Paul has said, I'm not, I haven't shied away from that. I was the watchman posted at the gate. He's telling the leaders at Ephesus, I was the watchman posted at the gates of Ephesus. And I was told and warned that a day was coming when the Redeemer would come and He would take His church with Him into glory and that He wanted as many of you with Him as possible. That's why He sent His Son. But there's a whole story that you need to understand and a faith that you need to have and a faith that needs to deepen and a person named Jesus that your trust needs to be in. And it's going to require sacrifice from you. But whenever you see it through the whole lens of Scripture, it's really not a sacrifice to you at all because you gain eternity in the end. And he says that I did not shy away from that at all. I was the watchman at the gate. And here's the part that that he wants them to understand that we're going to go into next. He looks at them now, and he doesn't say this explicitly, but what he's saying to them is, now that's your job. He says to the the leaders of Ephesus, to the overseers of the church of Ephesus, now that's you. You're the watchman. You're the one that knows what's coming. You're the ones that need to keep this going. Follow along with me, starting at 28. After he says that I did not shrink away from declaring the whole counsel of God, he goes on to say, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 28, listen, this is what he's saying. Elders, this was never your church. It's never going to be your church. You don't own it. You don't have the right to own it. This is God's. God bought it through the blood of His Son. So don't you ever dare take an unhealthy ownership of these people because they are God's. Your job is to be the watchman at the gate. Your job is to keep a watchful eye on the gospel, to watch each other, to watch the church, and to make sure that the gospel is the thing they move towards. There's no room for self-preservation here, men. That's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Notice he starts there. Elders, overseers, pay attention to yourselves. And then pay attention to the body in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To what? To care for the church of God, which, by the way, He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He knows what's going to happen is that men in this conversation right now in front of his very eyes are going to take their eyes off of what they've been called to do as overseers and start to focus on things that aren't full gospel. And they're going to pull people with them. They're try to get people to go to them more than be pointed towards Jesus. They're going to speak twisted things. If you've been in the church longer than 5 minutes, you can tell stories about how this has happened. <clears throat> Therefore, verse 31, be alert, remembering that for 3 years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Now, listen, that's important. That's important for us to look at and why he says it where he says it. It is slipped in between two things that I think is important for us to look at. First, he says, be careful. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep the church's eyes on Jesus. I know some of you aren't going to do that. You're going to say twisted things that pull people closer to your camp. Even among yourselves, So be alert and remember that for three years, I never stopped saying good and hard things to you. For three years, I never once let this be about me. That's what he tells them. For three years, I never let this thing be built on me. I didn't come back to Ephesus because it's your city. It's your church. God has put you there to lead it. It's not about Paul. Remember three years. Three years. Remember that. He modeled something for them. He went to their homes. He had meals with them. He didn't stack up his belongings. He didn't build himself a nice place to be in the center of the city for people to come see him. We're going to see that in a minute. Verse 32. Oh by the way, when he says "with tears, do you think Paul's a guy that's just overly emotional and cries at a, turn at the drop of that? I mean do we know anything about his character that just says he's just a weepy guy? Why would he cry? Why would he have tears? Because he is driven by something that's far bigger, and he's looking at men that he knows, don't completely get it yet. But he has to leave. So he says it with tears. No, you, you don't get it yet. For three years, he just keeps speaking and preaching and teaching and modeling the gospel with tears, with passion, with zeal. And now, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Listen, this is important, what he's saying to them. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the word of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's telling the elders, you should be working your tails off to provide for these people. You should be working your tails off, not so that you can gain more things for yourself, but so that you can pour more back into the church. Now, he's not telling them they can't have a place to live. But he's saying, if I did not do one second of this to gain more for myself, I didn't aspire to have more silver, I didn't aspire to have more gold, I didn't aspire to have nicer clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. We know Paul had a job. We know he had an income. He made tents. So we know that he worked hard, that he made money. But he said those those hands, these hands were used to provide, these things that were given to me were used to provide for my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, he's a big proponent on working hard, by the way. He doesn't think that his job is just to sit and study and teach and then people pay him for it. No, he sees his job as being in the trench with the people. If they're working hard for their income, so should he. That's what he's saying. And if I have more to give, I want to give to not just provide for me my necessities, but whatever's left over, I want to provide for the necessities that are coming with me. People like Timothy, who, who he was teaching and preaching and, 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 and investing in. And so for Timothy to understand ministry at the level he needed to understand it, to be given the reins of leading the church in Ephesus, he needed to have time at the feet of Paul to learn how to do that. To do that cost him time at doing a job that would pay him to live in Ephesus. So Paul would make tents and make money off of that, and if Timothy needed a little more extra because he was learning how to be a pastor, how to serve in that city, Paul would take whatever was left after he provided for his own necessities to help people like Timothy out. And the list of people that were with him is massive. Paul was the guy that would say, hey, let's go out to lunch. I got it. Every time. I want to provide for the necessities of our people, is what he's saying. Now he's looking at the leaders of the church and saying, now you do that. You do that. Remember the words of Jesus when we live this way. Remember, Jesus himself said, it is better to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus, is what he's telling them. And when he had said these things, verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is a sad moment for everybody involved. This is a a graduation of sorts. Graduations have a celebratory nature to them, but they're also kind of sad because when you graduate, you're you're stepping into a new phase and you realize that the life you just stepped away from isn't ever going to look like that again. So as excited as you are for this moment, you're grieving the loss of this moment at the same time. That's what's happening with these men is they're gathered around Paul and Paul says, let's pray. And they kneel down and they pray. And as they pray, they're weeping because they want to do this. They want to do it well. And they spend some time with the Lord in prayer and they're weeping and they hug him and they kiss him and they're sorrowful, most of all because they're never going to see him again after this moment. And then they walk him to his ship. I'll never forget the loneliest I've ever felt in my entire life. And it was whenever I uh, was done with my processing for the military and my family and Meg's family came to see me. And I was getting ready to go into this bus that was going to take me to the airport, that was going to take me to Alabama. You always feel lonely in Alabama, by the way, if you're not from there. I didn't know anybody that I was going with. And I just said goodbye to my family. So I'm real strong, right? I'm tough because I'm going to the military. I'm a tough guy. And so I, I walk into that. I go into a barracks. You grab your stuff, and then you were going to leave, like, in an hour or two, hop on a bus. So I say goodbye to everybody. I'm giving hugs, and my mom is a mess, and uh, Megan's a mess, and her parents are a mess. And I go into that room, and I sit down, and I'm like... I wonder if I can get out of this. I remember feeling so lonely because I had no idea what I was stepping into. The only thing I knew in that moment is what I was stepping away from. I imagine that's how these men feel. They have no idea what they're stepping into. They have no idea what it's going to look like to lead this church in a city of 300,000 people, a church that is growing and expanding so much that it started to affect the economy of that city. Things are on the upswing. They've got a leader appointed to them by the name of Timothy. He's a young man. And they're called to lead this thing. They don't really know what's ahead of them. They just know what they're stepping away from. And they don't have Paul anymore. And that's where this chapter leaves off. It's the last time they see Paul. Now, what could lead them to have any kind of confidence in that moment? If their identity is wrapped up in Paul, then all they feel is wrecked, lost, hopeless. Their identity has to be wrapped up in something that's not Paul. They've got to tap in and figure out what was his identity wrapped up in because whatever Paul's identity, Paul does this all the time. He, he goes into a city, he builds these close relationships, he sees people coming to know Jesus and he's like, good job, keep it up, I'm heading over there. So it's not like Paul's callous to this, but he's just so sold out to who Jesus made him to be. And these men are wanting that. They want that. They're about to turn around and head from Miletus down back into Ephesus, and they've got to do exactly what Paul just charged them with. They've got to be this godly example of what it looks like to be the church. They're the pace setters. They're the watchmen at the gates. If their identity is wrapped up in anything other than Jesus, they will fail. And that's what Paul warns them of. You see, when we're in Christ, when we are in this covenant relationship with Jesus, we understand how broken and messed up we are without Jesus. Our identity is wrapped up in all kinds of things. And we find confidence in those things. But when those things are taken from us, it wrecks us, just like the people in Acts 19. Their identity was wrapped up in their ability to make crafts and, and idols that were sold and they made money off of it. As soon as that was taken from them, they got angry and they caused a riot. So we're in Christ, though, when we live in that covenant bond with Jesus, our identity is so wrapped up in Him that we can live a confident, open, and humble life. We have nothing to hide. I can gladly tell you that I'm a failure in a lot of ways. I can tell you that I sin. I can tell you that I mess up because so do you. And if I realize that I'm lost and a mess without Jesus, and you realize that you're, that you're lost and a mess without Jesus, doesn't that just put us on equal playing field? That the only thing we have in common is Jesus. Yeah, we might find some other things that we like. But at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. We're all broken and lost without Jesus. And once we are in Jesus, our identity becomes Jesus. Our mission becomes Jesus. So I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. See, Paul could live that way. And when he had a chance to give his last marching orders to these men that he was in the trench with for three years, some of these men who came to know Jesus in those three years and he had invested in them, he had poured into them and they were passionate about Jesus so much so that he was saying, you're the ones are the watchmen at the gates. You're the ones that when you walk into that city and you live, I want people to see how you live and live like that. When you lead, that's what I want people to see that the church is all about. When they watch you, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, where you go, what you say is important. Paul says to these these overseers in Ephesus, I want them to see you do that because how you do it is how the church should do it. The problem we have in the church today is we don't believe that. We believe that if we gather on Sundays and live a good life and say nice things and are kind to people and do nice things from time to time or, or, or create these lists of things, it's not a holistic lifestyle, it's a partial lifestyle. And I don't have to let you into my life because it's my life. This is private. I don't have to have a close relationship with you. I'm not required to. I don't have to tell you anything. So we have defensive postures, and it makes the church be, be segmented into these groups and cliques. What Paul's telling the elders is when you go back to the church in Ephesus, 300,000 people, by the way, you go back into that city, like-mindedness is what's going to win the day. Understanding that what you have is not your own. It was bought at a price. He says later on to the church in Corinth, do you not know that your body belongs to the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In the body, in your personal life, every decision we make needs to be made through the heartbeat of God. And what Paul said is I lived that out and talked about it incessantly for three years. I make no apology for it. Actually, that's what I want you to do now. So if the day comes or Lord calls me home and somebody says, you know, Adam always talked about the same thing and this is it, I'm okay with that. Your life is not your own when you are in Christ, it's His. And it was bought at a high price for a certain purpose. And that's so that the world you live in gets to know that they are in danger of the sword coming into their city. And you're the watchman at the gate. And you, each one of you individually, have specific influence with specific people in specific situations that I don't have and that the person sitting next to you doesn't have. And if you're not the watchman at the gate, you could be responsible for their life. But God gives us these opportunities to live for Him, for Him to get the glory and renown and the credit for all of it. So if we, like Paul, can know that we belong to Christ and find our identity in who He is and in who He says we are, that's when life becomes worth living. That's when we find joy even in the midst of sorrow. And so we step into the uncomfortable waters of just letting people know us. Because you can be afraid of all kinds of things, public speaking or bats or or whatever. But really, at the end of the day, we're all really afraid of being known. That's our core fear. Now, if people knew this, they wouldn't want to be in a relationship with me. Well, that might be true, but you know who does? The God of the universe wants to be in a relationship with you, and he sees that ugliness. So if I have God on my side and you're not on my side, I should be okay with that. Our confidence needs to come from something greater than what we do here, because what we do here only lasts a short amount of time. The fact of the matter is we are who he says we are. Whether you want to accept that today or not, that's up to you but you are who he says you are. God, thank you for giving us an identity. We're about to say the words, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. So may our confidence be so wrapped up in you that really nothing else matters. God, make this be the thing we wrestle with. Make this be the thing that gnaws at us. Make it very real to us. Convict sin. Do what you need to do. Do your thing, God, and make us a willing vessel to go where you say to go, to do what you say to do, whatever it may cost us here on this earth. May we know deep in our bones that this doesn't really cost us anything. It cost you everything. And you only did it for us. You Give us an identity when we're in you and we are who you say we are. We're chosen, not forsaken.